This Week, the Comics Guys Explain the History of Image, Part 2. Explain this! Thank you, Ben. Um, yes, this is Image, Part 2. Last time, we got through all the setup for the new company with all of its artists, first founders, and we are at the point where they're just about to start. Yeah, so what's going on? How does the beginning go, Darren? So all of our image uh, creators have, you know, have come together. They've announced what it is they're doing. Um, they've, you know, kind of like agreed on the basic premise of the company. Uh, and at the time, obviously, like all of the people involved with it had relationships with both of the big two, but none of them had a current gig with DC, right? Like all the ones who had current gigs were currently working for Marvel. Right. And so when they pulled out, it's Marvel that took the beating, right? right? Like it's Marvel that like their stock just plunged on the announcement of it. It was Marvel that suddenly found that like this announcement happens in February of 92, right? They mm -hmm. Marvel is just at that point in the process of kind of like putting together its big summer events for 1992. Right. And this is like the last possible moment. Right. And so Marvel not only feels like they're being screwed over by these guys leaving, but it's specifically the timing of when they're leaving. Because it leaves Marvel without some of their biggest name uh, artists and writers just at the very last minute of the production of the summer books. Right. right. So, like, the Marvel you know, feels like they've been kneecapped, right? Like this is a completely unprofessional way to leave at this time. And a lot of resentment kind of like happens within the company with the people who stayed in Marvel, because a lot of people had to work extra time to kind of like cover for the people who were leaving all of the scheduling for the summer annuals and everything. And all the summer crossovers was completely screwed. Right. And Marvel really had to kind of, you know, uh, flail to get their uh, like products out for a bit. And so while all of this, you know, publicity was surrounding the startup of Image, um, at the same time, there was a lot of publicity on how Marvel was struggling. Right. And they took that personally, and that will continue to show up over and over again. Um, but as far as the uh, image creators are concerned, this is great. This is, you know, this is exactly what we wanted to do. And so the way they set up the company in early 1992 is to create image as an umbrella over each member's individual studio. And so image itself really doesn't exist as a company at this point so much as it's kind of like the group name for six smaller companies right. and those six smaller companies are each you know solely run solely owned by the creator who was in charge of them right so you've got mm -hmm. todd mcfarland doing todd mcfarland productions you've got uh jim lee doing uh wildstorm You've got Eric Larson and his company is called Highbrow Entertainment. You've got Jim Valentino, whose company is called Shadowline. You've got Mark Silvestri, whose company is called Top Cow Productions. And you've got Rob Liefeld, who is doing Extreme Studios. Now, like we said at the time, there were a seventh and eighth sort of members uh, who were not participating in this. Wilson Petrasio was supposed to be one of the people with his own studios. 
Um, but he had been out of the country uh, in the Philippines when the announcements happened. And then relatively quickly after coming back, his sister got sick. And he uh, kind of like basically took time off from doing any art to help take care of his sister and uh, wound up traveling back to the Philippines for a while. And so his studio, his kind of like portion, the seventh company that was going to be part of it, uh, did not get started with the others. And in the end, he winds up not making a company at all and just going to work within uh, the company for, you know, like some of his friends, he winds up working with Wildstorm for most of his stuff. Um, so like the seventh one never actually materializes, right? And then the eighth, of course, is Chris Claremont, who isn't getting a studio of his own, right? He's just, he's, he's just the writer, you know, kind of thing. Um, so those kind of like go to, uh, you know, get, get started. They start turning out their materials. And uh, each of uh, McFarlane, Wildstorm, Extreme, and Highbrow get their products out very quickly. You know, this is stuff that they had been working on all along um, over the last six months to a year, basically. And so their first titles, uh, you know, they got a lot of promotion for them. They got a lot of uh, marketing that happened. And the titles all debuted on time in the spring of 92. And those first four titles, obviously, are Spawn, coming from McFarland Productions, Wildcats from Wildstorm, uh, Youngblood as the first title out of Extreme, and Savage Dragon from Highbrow. Now, Youngblood and Savage Dragon were not brand new, right? Like those had all both previously appeared in issues of Megaton, um, published by Gary Carlson, back going back all the way to like the mid 80s, right? right? So those weren't new, but Spawn and Wildcats were both brand new um, out the door. It took a little while for the other two to get going because they were kind of like late to the process right and so top cow and shadowline don't get titles out until the summer in the case of top cow their big first title was cyberforce and for shadowline was shadow hawk right i don't know if you remember you know like the you, know, you probably don't uh person no. before it, but like these were you know this was kind of like the big event of early 92 of each of these titles kind of you know like hitting the hitting the stands and yeah, they were right. all they were all hits really mm -hmm. that's the issue number ones for all of those sold really well okay. not all of them stayed right i mean some of those if you you know kind of like remember the history of each of those titles you kind of like remember which ones had had staying power uh but all of them were pretty much smashes out the door and a lot of that came from because this was at a time when the collector's market was really strong and so there was a very strong attention amount of attention paid to these uh titles because these were the guys whose marvel work was already collectible Right, so it's like there was just an assumption. Oh yes, you should absolutely buy five copies of Spawn Number One because it's going to be worth a lot of money someday, right? Because it's Todd right. McFarlane, right? And so Malibu, all of the all of these titles were being distributed and handled by Malibu, and we talked about that last last episode. Um, and so when you were looking at the sales lists for publishers. All of these titles, all six of them, were listed as Malibu titles because it was Malibu handling their distribution, 
right? There was no image did not appear anywhere on the top selling, you know, publishers lists because image wasn't a company, right? right. Um, and each individual studio wasn't doing its own distribution. So all of these got to be listed as Malibu titles, which means suddenly Malibu is the number two, number three publisher in, in the world doing comics, right? Yeah. Uh, within a few months, Malibu passes DC in total sales. Yeah, what a rough time for DC. Also, if you it's uh, a it's not out. a good time for DC. Exactly, yeah, it's not really a good DC history episode. You'll you'll know what's going on with them. Absolutely. So Malibu shoots past them. Suddenly, there's a new number two. Right, there hasn't been a new number two in comic book publishing since the '60s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So I mean, this is now a, an enormous event. Um, Malibu is handling all of their administration. They're handling all of their publishing. They're handling all of the printers. They're doing all of the marketing support, etc. Malibu isn't really prepared for this, right? Like Malibu, I believe, has four or five employees at this point. <laughs> and so they're just crushed, right? They are just like, there's so much stuff. This is such a big deal. Everybody wants a piece of Spawn. Everybody wants a piece of Savage Dragon. Everybody wants Youngblood. And Malibu is literally doing everything that they can just to try to keep up, right? This is just, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're in way over their heads. And eventually, in fact, it won't take very long before Malibu will just give up and be like, we can't handle this. But, but by that point, Image will have made enough money in its first year and a half or whatever that they can afford to hire their own people you know, and can cut themselves off from it. Yeah. Um, so each of these titles, as they're coming out, Obviously, you know, all of the press early on was talking about how each of these artists had felt that they were being treated unfairly mm -hmm. by the big two publishers, right? That they weren't respected, uh, that their material, you know, they didn't get uh, to control their advertising and their marketing, uh, that they were facing editorial problems. Uh, you know, Todd McFarlane was always talking about having trouble with his editors over the amount of violence that he could, you know, like how much blood and gore he could show in his comics. And so there was a lot of kind of uh, uh, lip service given to the idea, oh, it's going to be different with our companies, right? Yeah. Except that, of course, none of them had a really a better idea on how to make a company work, right? <laughs> they had only worked for Marvel and DC. They didn't know any other ways to run things. So very quickly, each of their titles, each of their studios becomes a miniaturized version of Marvel. In just in this case, there is a guy on top who owns everything, right? right? They very quickly were hiring, you know, teams of freelancers to come in and help manage uh, and and take and uh, produce the titles that they were doing. And each of those freelancer contracts they had looked exactly like a Marvel freelancer contract or a DC freelancer contract. It was just in this case, the company had been started by and was solely run by one of the artists, right? It's as if Martin Goodman was like still running Marvel basically, except Martin Goodman was now an artist, <laughs> right? So they don't, none of them have any kind of like new ideas really about how a company should be run. What they have new ideas about, or, you know, like different ideas about is that uh, character is more important than plot, right? Like it doesn't really right. matter. The writing is not that big a deal. If you have a cool and interesting character that people are interested in, the stories, it's, you know, you need to have a story, obviously, but it's not that important. Nobody really cares. What they want is something that looks cool. Um, and like the art, 
is absolutely what drives and sells a title, right? So that uh, there's a lot of full page splashes to give the artists all of the room that they need to draw their super cool characters, right? And to draw their super violent fight scenes and their super awesome brooding at night on a, you know, the roof of a building, you know, shots or whatever, right? Like whatever it was, um, everything was in service to the art. Right. And so each one kind of like goes their own ways in doing this. Todd McFarlane uh, goes to, uh, you know, puts out Spawn is pretty much the only thing that TMP is doing. There's a bunch of Spawn spinoffs. Spawn crosses over with all of the other different titles. There's a there's a kind of like a, a early on an effort to say that everything published by Image does more or less happen in the same universe, right? Because these were all being written by friends and they liked doing crossovers with each other. So uh, it's kind of unclear in the first, say, six issues of each title, whether or not these are even happening in the same world. And eventually it becomes clear they're not, right? Because each mm -hmm. one kind of like goes their own separate direction. And after those first few kind of like quick crossovers, they don't really make a lot of reference to each other anymore. Gotcha. So uh, Todd McFarlane, uh, his, his company is based entirely around Spawn as a character, right? He does a bunch of different spinoffs and crossovers with the other titles there's at first image seems like it's going to have a shared universe right that all of these different characters are in the same world because all of these guys are friends and they like doing crossovers right like they, they think right. it's fun but very soon within a few issues it's kind of established that each one of these is their own universe and while they like doing crossovers the crossovers all need to have an explanation as to how somebody like changed universes Right? right. So that actually becomes, uh, you know, like a plot device when they do do crossovers as a general rule. Spawn is the most likely one to show up because McFarlane loves to have his character out there in other people's stuff. Um, and so since Spawn is one of like the very early hits, everybody is delighted to have him show up in their comic. Right. It, it's a it's a guaranteed sales boost. McFarlane uh, also very early on realizes he doesn't really like writing that much, right? Like he's fine with plotting. He comes up with cool ideas, but the actual day-to-day -day drudge of like sitting down and filling in all of those, you know, like balloons in every panel gets very kind of like tiresome to him. Um, and so by six or eight issues in to Spawn, he's, uh, he, he's definitely uh, looking for other people to do the writing. Now, the, the comic is a hit, right? And Todd McFarlane has made a pile of money mm -hmm. off of those first six issues. So he turns around and reinvests a lot of that money into hiring the biggest names in comic book writing at the time to come do an issue or two each of Spawn. Hmm. And so very quickly, it becomes this kind of like, you know, title of, oh, Todd McFarlane is doing the art and this month's guest writer is Frank Miller. <laughs> or this month's guest writer is Alan Moore, or Neil Gaiman, or Garth Ennis, or, you know, David Sim, like, you know, some well-known uh, writer just comes in and does just an issue or two of them, right? There's no particular kind of like long-term uh, story. And McFarlane will go to this over and over again for the next 20 years with this character, right? He loves having big name writers come in and kind of like, you know, 
make make everything look better, right? By like yeah. having you know like a high quality writer come in. Later on, it'll be Grant Morrison. It'll be Bendis. Doug Mensch uh, will do several titles, and he'll, Doug Mensch will actually do the Batman Spawn crossover when that like finally happens, mm-hmm. right? So very quickly, Todd kind of like pulls back from the writing, is just like, "Why well, I'm here to do the art, right? I'm and I'm here to be the owner, but uh, you know, that yep. that's going to be my my plan with this going forward." Wildstorm is incredibly ambitious in what it's trying to do, because not only are they doing, they're doing uh, uh, Jim Lee's titles, um, but they're also, he very quickly, like, you know, brings in several people to work with him. He's got Portacio's uh, Wetworks, right? Like rather than having right. Wills Portacio have its own, have his own publisher, um, Portacio just does it for him. Um, very early on, he establishes a very tight interconnected relationship between the different titles that he's doing and overseeing. Um, he does a lot of the art himself, but he's also very quickly kind of like brings in a team of freelancers. So not only does he have Wildcats, very early on, he's got Stormwatch, he's got Deathblow, uh, Gen 13. Uh, and then later on, he will add even more on top of that, right? Like in over the next few years, you'll get the Authority and Planetary and the entire American's Best uh, uh, kind of like subline will be done by Wildstorm at first by Alan Moore, mm-hmm. um, and we'll talk about that in a bit because Alan Moore, you know, they're they're not done messing with Alan Moore yet <laughs> for it. <laughs> and um, eventually, after about five or six years of that, Jim Lee himself will say uh, he he's not he's pulling back from Wildstorm, right? Like he's, uh, you know, he's, he started a thing, did everything that he wanted to do. And he decides he's not really interested in being the number one guy, right? He's still connected to a lot of people at DC. He sells Wildstorm outright to DC in 1998. And when he does that, he is kind of like back on good terms with them, which means that he gets to do a bunch of high profile work for DC. That's right. when he does Hush. That's when he does All-Star Batman and Robin, right, with Frank Miller. He does all of the concept art for the DC Universe uh, video game, mm-hmm. right? And by 2010, he's become a co-publisher at DC, which is what he really wanted all along. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like he's at this point now he is, you know, like a major player in the comic book scene. And he's doing this not with his own money, but he's doing it with Warner Brothers money. And that's what he had, like pretty much had wanted all the time. He becomes the chief creative officer in 2018, and last year, officially became the sole publisher, the 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 you know the the guy in charge basically at DC, uh, just in 2020. Yep, took him what 22 years from selling his own company to now running the biggest. Uh, or to basically more. running, yeah, to to running the number two, and you know once again doing this all with Warner Brothers money. So yep, yeah. Did uh did the other image guys were are they like mad at him? I, I was I've always wondered like if there's any like heat there. I don't think that it doesn't seem that way, right? Yeah, okay. They've always seemed. I mean, Wildstorm did its thing, and they have always been very much about doing your thing, right? Like he's remained, uh, as far as I know, it, it's not like Rob who we'll talk about. You know, like well, his, yeah. his problems with the rest of the company. Um, as far as I know, Jim Lee's uh, relationships with all of these guys remain solid. They're just doing different things, right? Uh, yeah. He he went back basically yeah. to the kind of stuff that he'd been doing previously, and you know, 
I think everybody's kind of like, well, he gave it a try. Yeah, that was cool. Did some interesting stuff. And now he's back doing, you know, he decided he didn't like it. They respect yeah. that, you know. Wildstorm stuff is actually of, of the original founders, like my favorite image stuff. So it's always it's it's the one there's the least of too. Right. Um, I like it. I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of Wildcats, but I do like the the later Wildstorm yeah, Wildcats stuff. A, Authority and Planetary, I think are both excellent. Authority and so. Planetary. Even uh, I even like Gen Thirteen and Wetworks. They're both really fun, really fun comics. Yep. Um. So, so that's a, so that's the thing. So Wildstorm, you know, kind of like does their thing, and and once again, like I said, really early on, they're ambitious. They have more titles than anybody right. else, right? Spawn is doing, you know, the the main Spawn line and a handful of special issues, and that's all Todd is doing. But Jim is Jim Lee is definitely kind of like you know created a whole multi-title spread, and just by volume, they're far and away the biggest titles, you know, the biggest publisher under the Image umbrella. Uh, Extreme also tries to do that. Mm -hmm. um, in that case, it's uh, Eric. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, Rob does uh, Young Blood. And then it has a bunch of spinoffs. All of the members of Youngblood kind of like get, you know, solo things that are going on. Um, plus he also does Bloodsport and Evangeline and a bunch of other things. Um, and that title uh, or that, that series of titles do all right, right? Like they continue. That's the, after the initial kind of like burst of, uh, of collector support for them, nothing's really a hit after that. And uh, he will eventually have some problems with image. We'll talk about that in a bit, um, but he, he'll kind of like go away and then come back, you know, for mm -hmm. a bit. Uh, Highbrow, once again, pretty much just does Savage Dragon. There's a bunch of, you know, spinoff titles. Savage Dragon appears in multiple different titles. Um, and some of his supporting characters occasionally get short series or whatever. But Savage Dragon is clearly what they're, what Highbrow is here to do, right? That's definitely uh, yeah. uh, the only thing that uh, that that uh, um, Eric, Eric is here for, right? Yeah. Uh, Shadowline is a similar situation. Shadowline is about one character. It's about Shadowhawk. Um, Shadowhawk's first appearances aren't even in Shadowline titles because he does crossovers and appearances in other people's stuff before Shadowline, the company, was even set up. Hmm. Right. So the actual first appearance of Shadowhawk is in, I believe, a Youngblood issue hmm. um, where he appears in a, you know, for a page. Right. Um, and then eventually, uh, that that line gets set up, um, and Valentino is able to actually, you know, like uh, put it in. There's several limited series of Shadowhawk, um, and Valentino, similarly to Jim Lee, kind of like pulls back from being the publisher himself at that point for a while, uh, and also pulls back from being the writer. The writing for Shadowhawk is eventually turned over to Kurt Busiek, um, who kind of like changes the character a bunch from the original version that Valentino had, had put out. Um, and under Busiek, he becomes much more kind of a, a Silver Age Batman reference with that's kind of like combined with a Grendel plot, <laughs> basically. It's a, it's a very weird character. Uh, and then Top Cow, of course, starts with Cyberforce, but very early on uh, branches out into uh, third-party titles like Witchblade 
and Darkness and Fathom, all of which considerably outsell that anything that uh, you know that that Top Cow was originally doing that Top Cow owned outright. Right, mm-hmm. Top Cow basically becomes a a, a third party publisher very quickly. Right. And Darkness so, is a pile of fun. Darkness is a pile of fun. Witchblade is a pile of fun for yeah. uh, for what they're doing. So Malibu has now gone by over the course of 1992. 1992 is a great year for comics, right? Just in general. Every, the market is riding high. Nobody, you know, uh, it, it, it's a bubble, right? Like it's, it's a bubble that everybody's enjoying. Everybody's like, oh, this will never come to an end, right? Like collectability mm-hmm. is great. Everybody is buying five copies of everything and, you know, sealing them away. And we're all going to be rich at some point in the future because we don't understand how demand works. Um, and comic book sales in general are up 25%, 91 to 92, just the, the industry as a group, right? Mm-hmm. Within that Malibu has quintupled their market share. You know, in 1991, they were 1.6% of the market in 1992, this bigger market, they're eight and a half percent of it. And they're fighting neck and neck with DC for who's the 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 number two title. Hmm. Now, August 1992 is the first month that Malibu slash Image passes DC in sales uh, total. Right? They put out seven titles that month, or they solicit seven titles. They sell seven titles. Out of those seven titles that they put out, that created all of those orders, that pushed them ahead of DC. Only one of them actually shipped on time, <laughs> right? right? That this will now start to become a problem because Malibu can't keep up with the mess, and nobody at Image, quote unquote, the company Image, is particularly interested in the day-to-day details of getting comic books out the door and into the hands, you know, into into stores and that sort of thing, right? And so products are coming out late all the time. Nothing is making its dates, and so suddenly there's become this question of six months into the life of the company, you know, why are all these comics late? Where are they all? February yeah. in 1993, Image has four of the five best-selling titles of the month, two of which shipped on time. <laughs> <laughs> right? This is the, you know, these guys are at the, there's an enormous demand. Everybody wants these comics and nobody can lay their hands on them. Right, retailers are mad. Titles are changing. Uh, you know, there, there are delays. The things are missing. The information that they're getting in order to do pre-orders turns out not to match what the comic book actually looks like when it comes out. They're getting misinformed about who's doing the art on different things, who's writing different things, what the plots are of different things. Right, like the the uh, retailers are telling their customers that things are happening because they're being told by the publishers, and then what they're being told by the publishers is wrong, right? They just don't look professional. And even though there's enormous demand, everybody wants Spawn, everybody wants Savage Dragon, they can't get them. And when they get them, they're disappointed with what they've gotten because it's not what they thought they were getting, right? So Image very early on kind of like decides, okay, we've, we've overwhelmed Malibu. Thanks for your help getting us set up. But we're going to start pulling away from you at this point. We are all just recently rolling in cash, and we're going to bring in our own people and just populate Image as a company. And the first guy that they do uh, bring into that is a guy named Tony Libido. 
And Tony Libido, his qualifications for the job are he was a friend of Rob Liefeld's in middle school. <laughs> and that's pretty much it, right? He has no business experience. Um, he is, is close enough friends with Rob Liefeld that he gets a co-creator credit on Evangeline, right? Like clearly okay. that's, that, that was a character that they developed hanging out, you know, like in his house at some point. So, you know, he is definitely close to the operation and he's, you know, one of Liefeld's closest friends, but he has no background in running a company. He certainly has no background in rescuing a company that's already in, you know, some, some, some production problems. Right. And so um, why did the other guys agree to like bring this guy in? If the plan is to make image its own company, that's like, just because Liefeld vouched for him. That, that's an excellent question. Yeah. But the, oh, okay. As far as we can tell the, because Rob said he'd be good. Oh, okay. Right? Right, so, right. you know, and once again, it kind of like gives you an idea of how much attention anybody was paying to this, right? Right. Like they, they just kind of assumed, oh, it would be fine. Of course, this will work, yeah. right? You know? And once again, their sales figures were telling them that they were geniuses, right? <laughs> the fact right. that those like sales were starting to fall off, uh, you know, month over month because people were getting angry with them had not really registered with them at that point, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... Libido doesn't work. He's only kind of in charge there for a few months. And, you know, he can't really fix anything. Um, and so, again, they go to the outside. And this time they bring in a guy named Larry Martyr. Now, Larry Martyr himself was an indie publisher um, and an indie creator. So the other guys respected him, which was not really the case with Libido, right? right. Um, Larry Martyr had done Bean World for example, and that had, you know, like been a pretty successful indie comic. Uh, and so by the end of 93, Larry Martyr, they brought in uh, to kind of like be the grown up, right? To be the guy who was going to like push people to get their work done um, and, and straighten out uh, all of kind of like the logistical problems that were happening as they were untangling themselves from Malibu. Martyr is a professional and he's a pretty smart guy. But in the end, he still doesn't have any kind of like real control over what's happening, right? Like he's he's an employee of the six of them, not their boss. Right. So if you know he can he can kind of try to push things into you know and, and make suggestions and that sort of thing, but he doesn't have the ability to overrule any of them, right? So he's there's only a limited amount that he can do. Um, the best kind of like expl explanation I can show of like the kind of order that things were happening in out there um, is Spawn itself, right? Like Spawn, you would think of all of the titles has the best, has the most money behind it, right? And is getting all of the big press because they've got Alan Moore and they've got Frank Miller and they've got all the stuff that's happening there. Even that is in such disarray that in 1994, uh, February 1994, Spawn 18 comes out. Right, we've got 18 issues out now in 20 something months. Uh, the next issue that then ships is number 21, which comes out in May. And they don't get back to actually like putting out numbers 19 and 20 until October of 94. <laughs> right? So the order of issues goes nine, it goes 18, 21, 22, 23. 19 and 25 the same month, 20 and 26 the same month. Oh my God. Right. Imagine trying to be a collector. Imagine trying to be a retailer and keeping track of that. Right. And like <laughs> understanding what the hell is actually happening here. 
so this is the state of image in kind of like in 93, 94. Tremendously, apparently successful, lots of sales, very full of themselves, and yet logistically they're a nightmare. At this point in the summer of 93 is when the kind of like the first cracks are going to start appearing in, in the operation, right? Uh, Jim Valentino and Lee reach out to uh, or, or are reached out to by Steve Bissett and Alan Moore because they have this cool idea uh, about doing a, a limited series that would be called 1963. And it will be a superhero series. And the premise of it will be that they are like a publisher. They're, they're basically taking the piss from Marvel. They're a publisher mm -hmm. that's like relatively new in 1963. And they're going to do a series of titles that feel very 1963 Silver Age-ish. And then at the end of it, they're going to cross over with the comics of the 90s, right? And and more very much wanted like that, like Valentino and Lee's kind of stuff to be emblematic of this is what is now, right? Like this is the mm -hmm. way comics are now 30 years after the Marvel explosion. Now you have things like Shadowhawk, right? Um, yeah. So like the idea that these would cross over with each other at the end was part of his story, right? Like that that's the ending of the story is that these mm -hmm. 1963 characters come to the 1990s and see the universe as is as it is the way it is now, right? Mm -hmm. Um this seems like a fabulous idea, right? And you know, 1963, you know, will be uh, creator owned by Moore and Bissett and it will be uh, fabulous. Um the very quickly the other members of Image, now that this kind of like relationship with Moore has been set up, start fighting with each other over who Moore is going to work with, mm -hmm. right? And they start immediately kind of like trying to steal him away from each other, mm -hmm. offering him more money, like to come over, you know, why don't you come over and write a couple of issues of my thing, right? And so Liefeld offers him a pile of money for a deal that will eventually turn into him doing Supreme with Liefeld. Uh, McFarlane hires Moore to come over and write a few issues of Spawn. And uh, 1963 never kind of like quite gels, right? Like it, they, they leave partway through. Jim Lee was going to do some of the art for it. And uh, he decides to quit and like kind of like back off from doing uh, uh, Wildstorm stuff before the final modern issue could even be done. <laughs> And by the time he comes back, ready to like kind of like return to actually get the last issue out, by that point, Rob Liefeld has left. So none mm -hmm. of his characters are available to appear in the story. And now Moore is mad at both Bissett and Lee for several different things, not least of which because uh, he had gone to work for Lee uh, doing the uh, America's Best stuff for Wildstorm, which Lee then sold to DC. Right. Moore doesn't want to work for DC. Mm -hmm. Moore left DC in a half years ago. Right, the idea that DC was going to wind up owning uh, the material and the, the 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 characters and the products and everything that he had done for hire for Jim Lee was outrageous to him, and he refused to have anything else to do with it. Right, he's already said, "No, I will never work for DC again." So all of the things that he had done for Wildstorm, when Lee sold Wildstorm to DC, basically what he was doing in a large part was selling Alan Moore back to them. 
right? <laughs> and so then Alan Moore was like, screw that noise, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I'm, I am not doing that part at all. And yeah. so now DC and, and Lee have to have a fight with each other over how much is Wildstorm worth without Alan Moore attached to it, right? Um, so that fight basically was not a thing that anybody involved with 1963 kind of like intended when it started, but very quickly it kind of like became one of the issues that they were fighting over, right? It was an example that the individual studios within Image were no longer really quite getting along the way they used to. Everybody kind of stopped doing crossovers with each other. Everybody was kind of going their own way, doing their separate things. And everybody kind of regarded each other as rivals now instead of partners. Right. If one of them signed a big deal, the others would definitely like try to respond to it to outsell them or perhaps come in and try to swipe away some of their freelancers. You know, if like a freelancer working for one of them got well known, it was fair game for another publisher to come along and try to, you know, like bring them away by offering them a little more money or something. Right. That kind of undercut the entire premise of what image was supposed to have been about. So image up in their own success, kind of. They do, right? Yeah, and so there was kind of like too much money involved, and like I said, the the idealism of what they were starting, what they had done when they started, was never really reflected in any of the deals that they made. Right. Right. They didn't set up a company that would not behave like Marvel and DC. They set up companies that were basically exactly exact copies of Marvel and DC, and the only way those systems work is if they're in rivalry, is if they're in competition with each other, right? right. Uh, so they break off with Malibu. They now have plenty of money to like hire their own staff. They're hiring their own printers, their own distribution. They've got their own warehouse. Um, Malibu, of course, you know, suddenly grew to being this enormous company, and then everybody from Image left, right? <laughs> and so Malibu's like, well, we've got a bunch of money, and we're really big now. Uh, and we hired a bunch of people. We need to replace that production capacity, right? Like we need to. We've got all of these printers ready to go. Let's get some big stuff here. And uh, they basically, to replace Image, create the Ultraverse line, um, which you know the, is Firearm and Hardcase and Prime and all of those characters, um, which does not nearly as well as they hoped. And by the end of 1994, they sell themselves. Uh, outright directly to Marvel hmm. in what is probably the one of the worst financial decisions that Marvel will make in their kind of like run of bad decisions in the mid nineties. Uh, <laughs> and once again, you should look back at our previous, uh, you know, our history of Marvel and how bad the mid nineties go. Uh, the decision to spend a bunch of money uh, acquiring uh, Malibu is certainly of the dumber ideas that they have, right? Like none of the ultraverse stuff winds up taking off. Um, Malibu itself becomes much less valuable very quickly because they've lost the Robotech license, uh, <laughs> which was paying a lot of their, you know, like non-image bills already. Uh, and so, you know, Marvel winds up owning a basically a great deal of nothing. At the same time this is happening, Dark Horse is getting bigger. And Dark Horse sees what Image has done sees the idea of like, oh, let's get all of these uh, creator-owned titles together, let the artists and, and the, the writers own what they do and kind of like turn that into a sub-studio. And they decide to try to duplicate Image's process in-house. Mm -hmm. And they create uh, an imprint um, called Legend. And they hire 
or they don't hire, they bring in and, and cut deals with Frank Miller and John Byrne and Paul Chadwick and eventually Mike Mignola, who will come in and have creator-owned titles under Dark Horse the same way that Image was set up, right? Like Miller does Sin City, uh, Byrne does Next Men, Chadwick does Concrete, and Mignola will do this cool you know, new thing uh, that nobody had ever heard of before called Hellboy. Right. All of those will happen for Dark Horse during the days that Dark Horse is trying to become the next image, right? Is trying to duplicate the success that Image has just had. Eventually, that imprint will fold, uh, and all of those surviving titles will first go to Diana Schutz's new uh, Maverick line in about 98, and then eventually all wind up getting folded back into the main Dark Horse line. And Dark Horse itself is a company that like needs absolutely its own episode to kind of you know at least one to explain everything that happens there. But uh, you know they they basically fail to become Image and instead become something entirely different that turns out to work pretty well. But you know their their first effort was to try to be Image version two and that didn't really work. Um, Liefeld at this point uh, says, you know what I'm I've I've setting up uh, a, a second company. Uh, besides the things that I'm currently doing uh, through Envoy, I want to have a separate company, and he creates a, a separate company called Maximum Press. And Maximum Press basically becomes the version, the way through which Liefeld can do all of these things that his current relationship with Image was not allowing him to do. Uh, Maximum Press is where uh, Supreme... This is where he's actually going to get to use work with uh, with more for a bit. Um, he's going to license some things. He licenses uh, the original Battlestar Galactica uh, to you know to run through Maximum Press, and Maximum Press is kind of like where Liefeld even crosses the lines that the other people wouldn't cross. Right? He is so uh, upfront and obvious and blatant about his efforts to try to steal writers and artists from the other image publishers that they basically get offended, right? They're like, yeah. you're, you know, he's the worst of the bunch of them for doing it. And in the end, Sylvester eventually goes to the rest of the um, image publishers and says, it's him or me, right? As long as Rob Liefeld is involved in this company, I'm not going to be, I'm going to pull Top Cow out of image if Rob Liefeld gets to stay. And that turns into a big dispute over 95 and 96 of the company founders, basically the image founders fighting with each other over this of like, you know, which of them do we want? Well, actually Rob Liefeld stuff kind of outsells Sylvester's, you know, maybe it's, you know, important to actually keep him on. Yeah. But we all like Mark Sylvester personally much more than we like Rob. Right. So it's like, (laughs) do we want to kick out the guy that we like so that, or, you know, have him leave in a huff? Uh, so that we can keep working with this asshole? Is this really the you know system that we've got here? In the end, Rob Liefeld basically solves the problem for them by quitting and walking away from Image, right? At that point, he has now fought so much with each of the members that he just decides to leave Image outright. And Sylvester comes back when, uh, in, in 1996, uh, 1997, um, Top Cow rejoins Image basically once uh, Liefeld is gone. Hmm. McFarlane has also done a second company um, that is that is uh, 
providing him like enough cash basically to keep himself afloat uh even as image is starting to like slide down the charts right like image is now uh is no longer number two dc has passed it again and frankly dark horse is usually making image like number four now right um mcfarland has created a company a toy company uh that he originally calls todd toys and Mattel sends a bunch of lawyers over to him. Uh, he has to change the name of the company because Todd is apparently the name of one of the Barbie characters, and he doesn't have the right to call the company that, right? Like they've 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 got licenses and trademarks and everything. Uh, so he changes the name of the company to McFarland Toys. Uh, McFarland Toys is, of course, as we you know know today, is a smash hit. Right, as a success as a toy maker becomes one of the biggest toy manufacturers in the world. They sell out the door their very first product are action figures of Spawn, and they sell two million of them the first year. So McFarlane is now once again, uh, you know, swimming in cash and starts signing deals with people uh, to you know make action figures of everything that he thinks is cool. Right. And right. McFarlane, that turns into McFarlane Toys. I mean, they're doing the Kiss stuff. They've got, you know, football players, Terrell Owens action figures, all of this kind of stuff eventually turns into McFarlane Entertainment, which adds an animation and movie studio on top of the toy company. So McFarlane now has a million things going on off to the side and is barely paying any attention to what is happening with Image. Right. Yeah. But in the mid '90s, uh, they do, in fact, no none of the original members has any new hits, right? But they do succeed with several of their other third-party things that they do. Valentino, in particular, is making an effort to bring in publishers who are going to do limited series, who are going to do their own things, publish them through Image, and still retain their ownership. Um, Danger Girl is done by uh, J. Scott Campbell in the mid '90s. Stray Bullets by uh, David Latham is a pretty strong hit. Astro City uh, is a big deal for a while uh, with just Busiek, um, with Alex Ross and uh, Anderson. Um, that is because Busiek already has a really strong relationship with Valentino, right? That he brings him in. So Image, still doing all right. Mm -hmm. In 1996, we are uh, now, if you remember the, the Marvel history for it, Marvel is approaching bankruptcy, right? Marvel is in enormous financial difficulty and they decide to do a kind of like a line shakeup. They are going to do what they call the Heroes Reborn event. And basically they are going to take some of what they are at the time, consider their second and third tier characters and basically kind of like spin them off out to and, and allow them to be published by other publishers, other creators, right? They're going to keep the X-Men and they're going to keep Spider-Man because those are, you know, money profit-making franchises, but they're going to take like the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and Thor and Captain America, these, char these characters that, you know, like pre the movies, they don't think they're that big a deal. And they're going to offer them to other publishers to see if they can make something work out of them, of course. Uh, and the two people who kind of like most take them up on this deal are Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee, uh, who basically each take, they take two characters each or two sets of characters each. Uh, Liefeld takes the Avengers and Captain America and Lee takes Thor and the Fantastic Four. And 
make big kind of like events. They're going to put them in their own universe again and make a big splash, modernize them to the nineties and use their, you know, like crazy art styles and Liefeld's case or whatever. And like, you know, make these characters hip to the kids again. This is where we get all those great pictures of Captain America with giant boobs. Exactly. Yeah. With that enormous chest and uh, you know, that like he can't see, he can't look down because it's blocking his path. Yeah. He has no feet. Um, this of course is the final straw for a lot of Marvel's employees, right? Because here are the guys who started our downhill slope, right? As far as like people at Marvel are concerned four or five years ago, these guys screwed us and left at the worst possible time to go, you know, do their own things, left us in a nightmare that we are still trying to dig our way out of, you know, like started us down this downhill slide. And now here is Marvel rolling out the red carpet to bring them back and making a big deal out of how, look at this, Jim Lee is doing Marvel work again. Rob Liefeld is doing Marvel work again. Isn't that great? Right. And all of the Marvel employees who stayed loyal to the company during this stretch, of course, are losing their jobs, right? Like everybody who was writing all four of those titles uh, just lost their gigs, right? Mark Wade, Mark Gruenwald, these people who had stayed with, uh, with Marvel are all unemployed now so that these guys can take their gig. Um, so a lot of angry people at this point. Um, Mark Grunewald, as we've discussed, uh, you know, dies relatively soon after this. And there are people at Marvel who will be so dark as to blame his death on the loss of Captain America as a character. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's Marvel's darkest days, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the sales on Heroes Reborn are kind of a mixed bag. Uh, the number ones of all four of them sell phenomenally well. But very quickly, the, the numbers on Liefeld go way down, right? Everybody kind of like paid for number one, read it, and thought it was a pile of crap, basically. <laughs> and nobody was interested in getting number two. Uh, Lee's also go down, but kind of like less so. Within six months, Marvel basically fires Liefeld. They back out of their contract with Liefeld. And they give the two titles that Liefeld had over to Jim Lee to see if he can fix them. Lee's, you know, numbers are going down slowly and Lee really does not want to be doing this anymore, right? Like he kind of like agreed to do it. Marvel says, we're only going to even renew this contract if you personally promise to do the art. We're not going to let you farm this out to other freelancers, right? The whole point of this is to have your name on the covers, have your art in these titles. And Lee says, I, I don't want to do that. I can't make that commitment. And so Marvel takes all of the characters back and the entire Heroes Reborn experiment only lasts about 13, 14 months. Uh, and it's over and Marvel, you know, brings all those characters back again and uh, separates their relationship. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Heroes Reborn is uh, worth reading only because it's worth reading how bad it is. <laughs> it's very wrong-headed, right? Yeah. It seems to very much kind of like miss the point of most of their characters. Yeah. Uh, so now Image, like I said, Image is kind of like struggling along. Um, Wildstorm, Lee sells Wildstorm to DC, wanting to return to creating only and basically winds up joining DC's management. Um, Jim Valentino takes over 
he basically stops running his own operation within it and kind of takes over what they are now calling Image Central. Um, and so the image now finally has its own offices, right? That are separate from the offices of each of its member publishers. And they're set up in Berkeley. And Image Central realizes that like the things that are making, I'm, okay, yeah, Spawn is still making money. Savage Dragon is still making money. Most of the rest of this stuff has kind of died off. And where they're making most of their money is third-party publishers, right? Are individual short relationships that they have where somebody comes in and does a single graphic novel or does a four-issue limited series or something and retains ownership and Image just handles the marketing and the distribution of it, right? Exactly what Malibu was doing for Image when Image started. They've gotten good at it now. They've actually kind of like set up a, you know, a structure uh, where this is available as a service to be sold to other creators. And DC, and it's as good as DCs and Marvels, except DCs and Marvels aren't available to you, right? If you're an independent writer, you've got a project that you want to own outright. DC is not going to sell you their warehouse space or their printer or anything like that, right? Unless you're actually like giving them a product that they're going to own. Image says our stuff is just as good as Marvels and DCs, and you can have it, right? And we're just going to take a share. We're just going to take a, a, a piece of the money. You pay us, uh, you know, like our fees for doing this, and you own everything. And they're really the only company that's available that can do that, that has that kind of uh, structure. And so they start they, uh, with Valentino in charge. They kind of like concentrate on that as their new business line. At the same time, the Spawn movie comes out in 97. And once again, Spawn takes off. Spawn has kind of like a second life as a character, right? It had started to kind of fall off in 95, 96. But when the movie comes out in 97, Spawn is once again the number one character in the world. And his comic is once again the number one comic in the world. And that gives uh, McFarlane in particular and Image in general a shot in the arm. Um, Spawn will lead to a series of additional troubles, right? Like uh, um, one of the characters, when McFarlane hires Neil Gaiman to come in and write some of the Spawn scripts, Spawn, uh, Neil Gaiman's deal with McFarlane uh, gives him co-ownership of the characters that he created in his comic, right? The characters who will first appear in that comic. Gaiman has no piece of Spawn himself, but the supporting characters and the villains and the whatever that like, you know, uh, Gaiman creates, he co-owns. And uh, McFarlane is kind of pretty careless. He's kind of like pushing the line on like how he's using those things without Gaiman, right? Because he Gaiman created a couple of characters. The, the version of Spawn who appears in like medieval times, right? Who is just basically referred to as medieval Spawn and also Angela as characters, um, McFarlane keeps reusing them, keeps kind of like referring back to them, and he's not paying Gaiman uh, like his shares for doing that. And Gaiman winds up filing, filing a lawsuit against McFarlane. The two of them spend a couple of years in court without really kind of resolving anything and finally cut a deal where Gaiman will give up his rights to Angela. He'll basically trade Angela back to McFarlane in exchange for McFarlane's recently acquired ownership of Miracle Man. 
of the uh, the the what the what had formerly been Marvel Man, the you know series that uh, Alan Moore had created, or you know recreated basically. That at that point McFarlane owned the rights to, and he was going to turn that over to Gaiman as as like his share of the trade, and no money would change hands. Right, they would just trade these two characters for each other. Okay. Unfortunately, when that uh, Gaiman agrees to this, walks away from the from the trials, right, like shuts down his lawsuit and says, this is fine, does some research on what he's acquired from McFarlane and realizes that McFarlane doesn't actually own the complete rights to Miracle Man that he just <laughs> sold him, right? That there's still people with like part ownerships in this who haven't been resolved and outstanding lawsuits and that sort of thing from the Mick Anglo estate and a bunch of other people. And McFarlane basically just not only traded his right to the character, but all of the problems he was having with that character to, to Neil Gaiman without telling him about it. And oh, so Gaiman... Resues McFarlane uh, and winds up by the end of this entire thing winds up owning not just uh, or clearing a bunch of the the Miracle Man rights, but he gets Angela back. And uh, Gaiman has no particular interest in owning Angela and immediately turns around and resells Angela to Marvel, which is why Angela is now a Marvel character. Right. And so you know this uh, this kind of chaos basically becomes just it's just standard for the way that image works at this point yeah it's such a weird such a weird story of uh how angela and all them and the, right we could probably do an extended happened? episode unto itself just about the, yeah. the mess of all of that but what happened to medieval spawn does 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 mcfarlane own medieval spawn no one ever yeah. talks about medieval spawn yeah, he gets it. Well, that's the the, the basically uh, as part of the in the first lawsuit, Gaiman gives him those rights back, right? Like okay. that's going to be, uh, you know, or acknowledges that he doesn't have an interest in it, basically. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure at that at this point that McFarlane owns Medieval Spawn outright. Once yeah. again, Gaiman had nothing that he could do with the character separately, so I, he was just like, oh yeah, I'll toss that back to you because in the end, it's not really worth anything to me except you should have paid me money, right? So. Yeah. So in 2002, 2003, while all of this is happening, um, IDW has now come along as a publisher. And, you know, Image is now down at fifth most of the time. And then a new third-party guy comes along with them, uh, comes along to them. And that's Robert Kirkman. And Robert Kirkman brings them his new titles, his new creator-owned titles, which are Invincible and The Walking Dead. And both of those are absolute smashes. Once again, by the standards of the marketplace at the time, both of them sell in tremendously well. Uh, Walking Dead obviously becomes the super TV franchise that you know eventually that it does. Um, and uh, after a few years of being published by Image, basically um, Kirkman's company, Skybound, becomes the first outside company to join the original owners as an actual full member of Image the first outsider to come along basically and kind of like come in at the same equal level as a image publisher, uh, as an image studio, basically. And he basically gets a piece of image, the company itself by putting skybound under this. Mm -hmm. Eric Larson replaces Valentino as the publisher in chief for the company for a bit. And then he is replaced by Eric Stevenson. And Eric Stevenson is still more or less the boss over there now. Um, they keep kind of like rearranging things a little bit. But Eric Stevenson turns the company the direction that Valentino had already started, basically, and says, you know what? Third-party publishers are 
our life's blood. You know, we're still doing Spawn. We're still doing Savage Dragon. Both of those are now, you know, 20 year old titles uh, that are continuing to go out. But Image's successes come from the new things that Stevenson and Kirkman bring in, right? Walking Dead, right. Invincible, Saga, um, John Lehman's Chew, uh, Monstrous, Manhattan Projects, Rat Queens, Sex Criminals, all of the titles that Image has done that have been hits over the last decade, say, um, have all been third-party publishers that have come in under Stevenson's management. And uh, with Stevenson in charge for it, uh, the company uh, actually moves from Berkeley to Portland, Oregon, um, which is where Image is today and has been for the last uh, three or four years. And their primary line of business, except for the you know handful of, of legacy titles from their original startup, are those new things basically most of which are themselves kind of like limited in limited series right i mean mm -hmm. um saga was a regular series that went on hiatus um chew keeps kind of like shutting down and coming back and same with rat queens um sex criminals i think is finished as mm -hmm. a title um they kind of like hit the end of it basically um so you know like that's that's where all of images money and efforts are are dedicated at this point yeah, and that's really pretty much the you know where they are today. Sure, Those yeah. are kind of you know that they, they've gotten a lot less controversial over the last few years. Yeah, uh, with with many of their people uh, who are kind of like the most interesting and the most problematic have kind of stepped aside from having anything to do with the company, and, right? Without Liefeld and McFarlane out there causing trouble, uh, you know they they've become a much more kind of I don't want to say boring, but like <laughs> they've, they've become a lot calmer as an organization over the last five or six years. So and unlike most, uh, you know. Uh, artistic endeavors. Now that there's less controversy, the uh, by and large, I think the stuff that they're putting out has gotten like better. Like, I'm, I'm, this this last generation of images, the stuff that I actually like, unironically and like without any sort of like qualifications, enjoy like right. Invincible and um, well, Walking Dead kind of went on forever, but um, Invincible, Chew, Monstrous, Rat Queens, all of this is really good stuff. So. Sure. Yeah, for me, it's Chew and Saga. Both of them I, I thought were tremendous. So. I totally forgot about Saga. Yeah, Chew is like one of the most interesting, weird comics I've ever read. Yep, absolutely. Uh, if you haven't read it, go read Chew. <laughs> um, it's about a guy who eats things and gets visions. The detective who solves crimes by eating the evidence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's pretty good. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, that was the history of Image. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.